and welcome to another Scott Swayhe podcast. And today I'm joined by historian and writer Stephen Mullen. Hello, Stephen. Hello there. Thanks for doing this. No problem. It's a pleasure. And last uh, summer we uh, recorded Louise and Jude um, to do with the Empire Cafe, which was held during the Commonwealth Games, and you were kind of well a big part of that. Can you? Just talk, we'll talk more about the Empire Cafe later on, but just talk about your your role in it to begin with. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose the, the grand title I, th- I had was uh, Historical Advisor, uh, mm-hmm. and as, as Louise says, I was I was their historian, I was the Empire Cafe historian, so, right. so it was really good for me to be involved, you know, and, and just to speak a little about my research into Glasgow's involvement with, with New World Slavery, so... It was just really providing expertise on that and, you know, talking first, firstly, the first part of it was, you know, obviously they brought a lot of poets and, you know, artists from different Caribbean yeah. countries, so I had a remit to, to, you know, identify countries that Scotland had involvement with slavery, sure. so, so it, it went on for them. So, I mean, they were bringing over the kind of cultural aspect that you were putting mm-hmm. in historical context. Yeah, that. certainly there was, there was definitely a degree of, of rigour of what they were doing yeah. um, as well, you know, it was, it was a really important public engagement exercise but you know it was grounded in empirical research so when the first time i heard your name was to do with the book it was near us mm-hmm. the truth about glasgow and slavery um and that well t- tell us how you started that book i know it's to do with your study already mm-hmm. but how did the book come about really that was the predecessor i've written i do right um basically i had done a history degree in 2005 the university of strathclyde and had finished and went back to my old job with my dad right. who was a joiner so we were fitting windows, um, and that was what I did when I left school and stuff. So my dad was a joiner, really. I was just the the, the gopher, Aye. if you like. So I did that when I finished the degree, um, and then I was just I was looking about for something to do. I mean, what do you do with a history degree? You know. Okay. Uh, and seen a job advertised University of Strathclyde his career website. They were looking for just a history graduate to come in and do some research on Glasgow and the slave trade. Okay. So I had no idea of Glasgow's involvement, which is seems almost ridiculous now since we're at university almost in the merchant city Aye. but you know I never had any understanding about Glasgow's colonial past but so I think that's incredibly common I think most people mm-hmm. are, you know listening to this hence the title it wasn't us you yeah. know you, you think it is a peculiarly English problem sure so uh, uh, this was the project was a national lottery project funded um, and for a wee organisation Glasgow Building Preservation Trust and they just wanted to um, I, I wrote a wee exhibition for them did some research on the streets you know, the, the, some of the most prominent tobacco lords and West India merchants produced like a wee heritage guide for them as mm-hmm. well and did some tours. It was an event we put on for the, it was the bicentennial of the abolition of the Slave Trade Act okay. in t- 20, 2007. So really it was it was structured around about that. But then at the end of it, they said, do you think you could write a book? Wow. And naively, I, I just <laughs> I just said, I, you know, I, I think we can make this work. And I, I already had the basis of it, okay. you know, the core of the research was there. Um, and the editor was um, Neil Baxter, right. Royal Corporation of Architects in Scotland. So we kept it, you know, sort of building a heritage, but also our, the social history. So the, uh, looking at that, because the book itself has got some fantastic pictures Aye. and uh, illustrations mm-hmm. of a lot of the buildings in this area. Well, that was that's what we really tried to do. I mean, from an academic historian's point of view, uh, there's nothing new there. Right. Um, so it, it was really about taking existing research you know, and putting it to a new medium, mm-hmm. you know, and connecting the story, you know, so, so to bring it up to date with the most recent research on Glasgow's involvement with the slave trade, 
as well as just putting a new interpretation on the involvement of the tobacco lords and the West India merchants, mm-hmm. how they put the money into the city, you know, the, the built heritage, the landed estates, and we wanted to make it look good. Yeah. You know, so an important part was was collaboration with the Mitchell Library and you used a lot of their fantastic images. Yeah. So so it was really it's a primer, if you like, you know, it's it's about getting people involved. I've told undergraduates cite it quite a lot, okay. which is Excellent. pleasing. Uh, I've I've spoke at my old school, right. St Aidan's and Wisher, they come up and one of the history teachers said it really influenced her and I went up and spoke to the Fantastic. kids. Which was great since yeah. they chased me out of St Aidan's almost. I was going to say, back in. <laughs> 1994, you know, so so for me that's really pleasing to see that it's having a, an impact, you know, and, and, and people are interested in it and find it an easy read. Well, know? I think it's, it's a very accessible book. Good. And I think, you know, the way it's 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 done, it's the kind of thing that people will pick up, I would imagine, in, in you know, in Boston's or whatever. Aye. And just go, I didn't know any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, why is it you think we don't know any of this stuff? Obviously, yeah. it was not taught to us, but, you know. Well, I think, I mean, I, I listen to Tom Devine speaking quite a lot. I mean, his new book, Scotland and Slavery, about amnesia. Mm-hmm. You know, and he speaks about, he. there's a famous quote, he says, in the 1960s, some big research professor said that the history of Yorkshire had more written about it than the history of Scotland. Wow. So I think part of it is the, is the immaturity a Scottish history as a discipline. Right. You know, so I think Scottish history in general and maybe other, I mean, it's certainly grown up off Tom Devine's career. Yeah. You know, maybe the last, you know, 25 years or so. So I think, I think that's been one part of it. It's the maturity of the discipline in general. Yeah. But in particular, I think this area has been mostly written about from an English perspective. So not just that we weren't taught this material, but actually, Aye. you know, at schools for most of the 20th mm-hmm. century, we weren't taught any Scottish no, history, really. No, no, you're right. I didn't get taught Scottish history at all at school. Mm-hmm. You know, we did. Um, you know, we get taught about the Tolland Man, which is a bog body in Denmark in history. <laughs> yeah, we done a bit of the World Wars. You yeah. Know? So I had to go to I had to go to university to actually do Scottish history, and then that's what really you know really gave me the interest about what I was wanting to do. It's very similar to how I kind of got into Scottish literature because mm-hmm. hardly taught any at school, and then I had to go Aye. to university to find mm-hmm. out what was out there. Mm-hmm. Um. So. That was how the book came about. Mm-hmm. It's got some fantastic images of this area. Tell us a little bit about the history of the Merchant City as linked to mm-hmm. uh, that the slave trade. Now that's an interesting point. As I mentioned earlier, you know, I was at Strathclyde the, in the Merchant City, mm-hmm. you know, and had, had no understanding of it. So you do get an understanding what actually is a Merchant City. Yeah. They don't say slave Merchant City. No. No, they wouldn't. They don't, <laughs> uh, they don't say slave produce Merchant yeah. City. So then you just start to think about, you know, how did the Merchant City come to be? Well, the Merchant City, as, as we know it, mm-hmm. didn't exist before 1711, you know, yeah. so this would have been a semi-rural region. This is the medieval centre of the city, the High Street, the Cathedral, Old College, yeah. was just in this street as well, going down at the Salt Market. So this is the medieval heart of the city. But this part of it here, now known as the New Town, didn't exist before 1711. Uh-huh. Um, there's a very important colonial townhouse called the Shawfield Mansion. Right was built by a, uh, for a Daniel Campbell, who was a commissioner at the Treaty of Union. He was also a, an indentured serv- servant trader in Montserrat and a sugar trader. And, you know, he really epitomises the colonial elite in Glasgow, right. the mercantile elite. So he builds this Palladian townhouse. Um, and really, really important style of architecture, this Palladian style of architecture, <clears throat> influenced by... Um, Palladio was a Venetian, so it was classically influenced. Okay. And it really sets the architectural motif in Georgian 
Glasgow and indeed Britain because right. this is the prototype colonial townhouse the architect Colin Campbell he then takes his uh, he publishes Vitruvius Britannicus which is an architectural manual and you know that's Palladian style is this is a kind of template for what will happen in the rest definitely of the so all the tobacco lords copy it in Glasgow all the big townhouses you get three big ones you know you've got the Shawfield Mansion then mm-hmm. you've got the Virginia Mansion which is built with the, the Buchanans in the 1750s and then you've got the Cunningham Mansion uh, in 1778 for William Cunningham then you see not only do these uh, merchants and slave traders tobacco lords and sugar traders they don't just set architectural styles but they're having a really profound impact on the urban layout so if you think of the Shawfield Mansion was in Glassford Street right then the Virginia Mansion which is a direct replica the, mm-hmm. the Shawfield sets a point of view precedent where you have a large colonial townhouse at the end of a walled avenue, a okay. gated avenue. If you think of Glassford Street and then Virginia Street, the two streets are built perpendicular. Yep. So it sets the urban this urban grid in the merchant city. That you the know, kind of grid system that we have now. Sometimes known as the tooth comb. Right. So these guys with their, with their mansions and their gated avenues, they're really setting, setting this grid, sometimes compared to New York, if you think of that grid okay. system as well. So, so you have these fantastic houses basically at the end of these long ways, so aye. wherever you were coming up to them, you could see this thing at the end. Definitely, aye. It's this, it's this you know, large townhouse. So if you think of Glassford Street, would have had apple trees. Wow. orange trees you know your deer running up and down this avenue <laughs> you know this um it's really this is about conspicuous consumption you know sure. it's, it's about an ostentatious display i'm a colonial merchant this is how i live you know and this is the palladian townhouse so the model is if you have the palladian townhouse you know the counting house where the business is done in the merchant city you know where the clerks would be working dealing the tobacco the sugar the cotton and then you would have the landed estate you know, maybe 10 miles outside of Glasgow. That, that's your typical model for your successful colonial merchant. And so why Glasgow? Why did it become so successful almost first? I think the river. Of course, yeah. the river Clyde. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's the river Clyde. And then the cathedral. Uh, and then the university. You know, so that, the irony is, you know, we've then got the old college, now the university of Glasgow. You know, this merchant city is, is based on the back of new world slavery there's yeah. there's no two ways about that the tobacco yeah. sugar and cotton yet at the same time the university is then you know it's it's providing a philosophical critique of slavery so i think it's about this commercial town that's grown up i should qualify it and say that the larger ships don't actually come into the city center so they would have used port glasgow and greenock did they widen the clyde am i right in thinking at one point they did Aye, they, they, they dredged it mm-hmm. yeah, and, they, and they widened it quite a bit, you know, to take, take, take some of the boats. But the larger seagoing vessels would have still docked at, at Port Greenock. Glasgow and Greenock. Then the produce would have been landed and it would come up to the city centre as we know it, the Broomy Law. Yeah, yeah. And Gabbard boats, Gabbard ships, which is shallow bottom ships, you know. Right. So the hogsheads would have would have come up there, landed at Jamaica Street, uh-huh. brought up to, uh, Gyle Street was the main thoroughfare. They would have been weighed at the Tron gate. Tron means public way beam. Oh, right. Wow. So they've been weighed there and then this direction where we are right now, just yeah. like the high street, this, there would have been numerous warehouses up here. So so that's how the that's how the trades would have happened. It's interesting that, you know, it's, uh, the Clyde and shipbuilding and it's become to have this mythology in Glasgow that it's where the heart of the labour movement and mm-hmm. all those things. A lot of positive things you've spoke about, the university, mm-hmm. the college being built up. But mm-hmm. yet, the reasons that these things became as big as they were was kind of on the back of the slave trade. Definitely. 
you know, and I, I, I think that's part of the back, back to this amnesia is, you know, we prefer to see Scotland as, you know, associated with, you know, Red Cloud side yeah. and Glasgow in particular, um, you know, the labour movement, radicals, you know, so there's this, you know, rich historical tradition of challenging injustice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the same time, you know, I think it's, you know, it's been quite easy to forget, you know, that the impact of slavery has on it. I think it's still quite uncomfortable for a lot of people. It's certainly still a politicised issue. Yeah. You know, and it's got the capacity to generate newspaper headlines every so often. Um, but we shouldn't forget, you know, I always qualify any talk I'm doing um, or any tour I'm doing. You know, there's the good news and there's the bad news. I gave you the bad news, which is the quite profound involvement with Caribbean slavery, New World slavery. But we've also got, you know, a really powerful and committed abolitionist movement as well, okay. which is philosophical. The university, three scholars, Francis Hutchison, yep. Adam Smith and John Miller, three of them are working in the university and teaching, you know, an anti-slavery critique for a moral critique and an economic critique, yeah. in particular with Adam Smith, Wealth, Wealth of Nations. So then it becomes like a political movement as well, and you get numerous anti-slavery societies in Glasgow as well, which really fits in with a, you know, a convenient identity that, mm-hmm. you know, this radical tradition of challenging injustice. So I always, always qualify the, the, the bad news. So you touched upon the tours that you do. Tell us a little bit about those. Do you still do them? I do them sometimes. I am. Um, it started off with Doors Open. Yeah. Um, festival doors open week doors open weekend. Yeah. Um. So that was the Glasgow Building Preservation Trust. Yeah, that's when they opened a lot of the classic um, buildings that are shut most of the year to yeah. let people. Kind of so it's in September. So I still keep them up. Um, Black History Month as well, which is in October. Um, I've been doing them for well since two two thousand and seven. Okay. So that's about oh. my year, eight year, <laughs> bit of veteran. Now. Um, but also the Merchant City Festival has been really good as well, okay. you know. So, so they contacted Doors Open and says, you know, we're looking for some new material. So I was commissioned by the Merchant City Festival a couple of years, and in fact, then I met, you know, people who were involved um, with the Commonwealth Games. That led into that, you know. So that that led to my involvement last year yeah. with the cultural program. Well, let's move on to last year because it was a very busy year for you. I know mm-hmm. um, it was the year of the Commonwealth Games mm-hmm. and. Um, you determined, I think, along with some other people, that this story would be told alongside all these people coming here. Mm-hmm. Again, Glasgow having a particularly welcoming... I mean, it was a big success, I think, in terms of how Glasgow was viewed. Yeah. And I think for the first time for many people, this story was able to get mm-hmm. out there. How did you go about doing this? Because I would imagine that there was a lot of people involved with the Commonwealth Games that wouldn't want this story told. I suppose it's an uncomfortable narrative. Um, but... Really, the credit the credit is with Louise Welsh and Jude Barber. You know, they had the the you know the real idea of this Empire Cafe. And Louise and I had and Jude had worked on a project before the Merchant City Soundscape. So it really evolved for that. They, they knew the expertise was in Glasgow. They knew I was working on it. They knew I was doing the academic research, just completing the PhD at the time. So you know, they had the organisational you know knowledge and experience in and what they were wanting to do. You know, obviously Louise's. A long number of years involvement in a book festival, so yeah. it was it, it was a really it was a marvelous platform. So I never had I didn't have any involvement in that side of it. So really the credits with them and that. But you know for me it was it was providing the, the historical advice and you know a couple of um, the events were great. You were on stage talking. Aye, seemed to be you know I, I, <laughs> I was right there. Stephen, Stephen will speak. Stephen will speak. And I, I, one of the, the the nicest moments. I mean. 
there were some flowers for Louise and Jude at the end and I got the pleasure of gate crashing. Louise was just just going to go on the stage and I had I was told got on the stage before her and I was on presenting and you know, it was really good. It was it was great for a historian, you know, to so you do this research in archives, you know, and you write some academic paper and twelve other historians read it, you know. So the public impact of that for for me yeah. to actually speak in conversation with the Glasgow public was was, was really marvellous. It was complemented as well with there was a play, Emancipation mm, Act, which right. was, was based in the book. So and this is pretty much Hollywood for, for a historian. <laughs> I know, know for an academic, aye, it really is. Aye. But so, what I should I mean we spoke to Jude and Louise before it to, mm-hmm. kind of, to kind of, you know, hopefully get a few people there. And what we should say now that it's happened is it was a huge success. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean it was busy. Aye. A lot of things, you know, you could have it was in uh, what was the name of the building that it was in? The Brigitte. The Brigitte. Merchant well, Steeple. That's right. Um, fantastic space. Aye. The, you know, the, 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 the cafe that they had there was great. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the speakers, you know, the mm-hmm. people that came from all over the Commonwealth, didn't they? Definitely. I mean, it was, it was a really, really well thought out concept. You know, they had obviously put a lot of thought on a number of different things. You know, every, you know, the goods in the cafe and stuff were fair trade. You know, everybody was getting paid as well. You know, um, they had... You know, there was a proper representation of, you know, every former British West India colony, you know, yeah. uh, Trinidad, Jamaica, you know, um, it was proper gender balance and speakers, you, you know, so it was really a marvellous, well thought out concept, yeah. you know. They, they also, they had like, their own teacups made and I'm, I'm now the proud owner of a nice Empire Cafe teapot. Um, you know, so it was really, really a well thought out yeah. concept, and I, I think a lot of pe- people appreciated, you know, the thought that went in it, as well as the academic content. You know, there was quite a lot of high profile speakers. There really was on yeah. a number of different challenging issues, particularly the museums. Yeah, one the museums night was one that seemed to strike home with everybody. So, um, and uh, land ownership as well. And, you know, there was a lot of hot topics, mm-hmm. and what was great was that. It wasn't, as you say, it wasn't just an academic audience or even like a mm-hmm. cultural, not even just people that would normally maybe go to hear poets read or something. Mm-hmm. People were coming in off the streets because the Aye. city was buzzing anyway. Mm-hmm. I, and, and I think um, a lot of people had their eyes open. Definitely. I mean, I, I felt that the city, the city was alive. I didn't actually see any sporting events. So I just went to uh, the Empire. I was there every day at the Empire yeah. Cafe, you know, and uh, had a few good nights and uh, after in a pub sometimes and you know so there's, there's a real you know it was, just, it was a really marvellous experience you know to speak about your, your own research yeah. and there's a, a, a you know an interested audience you know it's great to be able to do that yeah. um, and hopefully we, we, we recorded um, at least one of the nights there which we've still got to put out so hopefully mm-hmm. we'll be able to do that cool. fairly soon there was also uh, last year an exhibition at the Kelvin Grove Art mm-hmm. Gallery were you involved in that as well? was that the one in October? Uh, yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Aye, well, that was the that was the, the exhibition. One that had the exhibition that um, had a lot of the pictures that are in the Aye. book. Well, that, that was where the book evolved. Fee. Right. That was the project that started in two thousand and seven. So that was the exhibition and the heritage guide. Um. So that's now um run or at least it's stored by an organisation called CREA. Uh, they were, used to be Glasgow Anti Racist Alliance, who were original partner in the first project. I worked with them for a, for a few years. So. So it, it's still there, you know, so eight years later, it's looking, you know... Is it still on the go? It's still on the go, eight years mm-hmm. later, so that was the... It's in the Kelvin Grove every year in Black History Month. Right, okay. It needs a wee bit of tape here and there, you know, it needs uh-huh. a wee bit of TLC, you know, but it's, 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 it's still there. So. It's a terrific exhibition, I think, for anyone who Thanks. knows the city particularly, but even if you don't, 
Um, we've talked a lot about Glasgow, but mm-hmm. what about the rest of Scotland at this time uh, when Glasgow was, you know, filling its boots due to tobacco mm. and sugar and the like? No, that's an interesting point. The academic research I do is obviously I'll do PhD was focused on the Glasgow West India merchants, mm-hmm. plantation owners, and sojourners. Sojourners are temporary economic migrants uh, who go to the Caribbean. So the my period was just after the American War, seventeen seventy six up to eighteen forty six. So you got a few big events in there. Obviously, Glasgow is the transatlantic hub. Uh-huh. You know, so you've got all these merchants in here. The, a lot of the finance is coming in here. They're starting new industries. It's providing employment. So the argument is, you know, is it just Glasgow that's profiting for the for, sure. the, for the new world trades? Um, but I think these sojourners, you know, the research I've did, I mean, I was in the Caribbean for a month last April. I was in Jamaica for wow. three weeks and then Grenada. So I was there for, for just just over a month. And basically I was looking for Scottish. Um, usually the typical model is these are young Scottish men, sometimes 20 to 25, you know, they're single. They're getting a commercial education in Glasgow, mm-hmm. you know, accountancy, bookkeeping, and they're going to the Caribbean to um, advance their fortunes. You know, the difference between the North American settlers, you know, they're temporary, the sojourners, they're, the guys that are going to the Caribbean, they're going there to further their employment, earn as much money as possible and come back. All the research I'm doing, you know, I, I maybe discovered about 70 or 80 examples of these guys, okay. <clears throat> uh, and I've probably got about 100 of them overall. But I looked at their residency status. Only a minority of them were coming from Glasgow. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, and Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of them were coming from the northeast of Scotland, some from Banff, some from Aberdeen. You know, so these guys are coming to Glasgow. They're leaving for Port Glasgow and Greenock. They maybe be going in the merchants that are based here, their ships. Um, but they're coming from all over Scotland, and they're sending money back. You know, and the. If they're dying, they're sending money through executors, right. or else if they're coming back. The, the ideal model for them is go to the Caribbean, earn as much money as possible through, you be an overseer, mm-hmm. then uh, perhaps an attorney watching a couple of plantations, and then become a slave owner yourself. Ideally a plantation owner for their point of view, because yeah. that's where the, the money's to be made. I think the merchants in the Caribbean are making the most money, but then they're sending this money. The ideal for them is to come back to Scotland, yeah. So the idea was never guy. to really settle there no. and, and improve <clears throat> the Caribbean. No, it was to come back and show, show off your wealth or improve, for some of them, improve their surroundings back here. Definitely. And that's the difference between the, the emigration to North uh, America and Canada, for example. You know, these are white settler communities. But further south into the Caribbean, it's made as much money as possible. This mindset, and then come back and buy a landed estate in Scotland. I think only a minority of them would have done it, you know, but certainly, I mean, I was look, I was interested in the wee guys. Yeah. You know, I was not interested in your, you know, the, the, the merchants who are, you know, leaving the, the big wells and inventories, although they were important as well. But I was interested in the carpenters, you know, the masons, the tradesmen who were yeah. just gone and, and, and they were sending money. I mean, this one guy from Banff, he had sent um, 35 years, a, a an average annual wage, a carpenter in Glasgow. He sent that home to his mum. Yeah. And when he died, it was in his, his bank balance and his mum had been using it. And I thought, you know... They're earning this cash that's no offer in Scotland, you know, and they're earning it quickly yeah. and they're sending it back. And it's really, really hard to quantify this. I mean, how do you how do you quantify, you know, the impact on somebody's family improving their position down the generations? I mean, this money is, you know, it's Scottish, yeah. any Scottish land or Scottish industry or any families. Nobody knows, you know, so it's, it's really an invisible stream. I mean, that is something that you don't really think about. You think of these merchants and particularly when the exhibition was on, you saw these 
you know, depictions of these guys in paintings or whatever, and they were right. dressed like, you know, new romantics, you know, they had right. the best gear mm-hmm. and all this. But of course, for this to work, you need people to build houses, you need right. people to uh, till the land, mm-hmm. and do it, you know, or at least look after the people who are tilling the land. Right. All of those things, and mm-hmm. uh, and of course they would probably be paid, you know, in comparison to what they would get here. Aye. Kind of gold rush in a way, but unfortunately exactly not the gold. Well, it's it's white gold, which yeah. is sugar, and black ivory, which yeah. is unfortunately enslaved people, yeah. women and children. They're, they're the labour force, but these guys are a, in the plantation infrastructure. You know, these guys are the, the management structure, if you like, and they're also providing the skills and the experience for, you know, as you say, to build up the plantation inver- infrastructure. There are also some distillers in that as well. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it's these are early modern, the plantations are early modern farms and factories in one. Yeah, and it's based on obviously exploitation. Uh, but the, the money they're earnings, you know, it's it's they, they don't get it here. Yeah, sure. So when they come back, do other people take over this land that they've been working on in the Caribbean, or I mean, what happens? What's the what's the legacy in the Caribbean in that way? It's quite a high death rate. So, so some of them wouldn't have made it home. Yeah. Or, um, somebody's need to do a study on a huge big sample, but you yeah. know. A lot of we don't have a strike rate, but certainly some of them are dying in the Caribbean. Yeah. Um, but you, in Jamaica in particular, I mean, this is a Scottish colony, so they think a full one third of the white population in 1774 are Scottish or of Scottish descent. Wow. So if you think of Scotland's ten percent of the British population at the time, mm-hmm. you know, were disproportionately represented in Jamaica in particular. So these Scots go out and they operate in Spanish networks. You know, so they through patronage and through uh, I've looked at some sources you're saying, you know, these Scotsmen are friendlier than other nations. Right. And he says, um, and I haven't seen one guy coming out here called Mac that doesn't have a letter of recommendation from some excellency or another. So they're very, very well connected, the Scots. Okay. You know, and some historians have argued they operate like other ethnic minorities, such as the Jews, right. for example, you know, so they operate in wee networks amongst themselves. So if one Scots guy would have died um, or go home, yeah. you know, you would, another Scot would probably get promoted. Which probably could come from the clan system or that would be, you know, or something similar you'd imagine. That's Douglas Hamilton's argument. Okay. Um, you know, about 10 years ago, Scotland, the Caribbean and the Atlantic world, which is based on his PhD at right. University of Aberdeen in 1999. So uh, he, he's made an important, uh, you know, argument about the networks. And also a, a, an earlier historian, Alan Carras, looked at the Scots in Jamaica and Virginia. So, aye, these Scots are... Definitely, they're, they're going out there, they're operating these clanship networks, making the money, mm-hmm. and, and then coming back, or hopefully. Hopefully back, coming hopefully back, yeah. Uh, before we started recording, you were saying that the, the book that influenced you had kind of been attacked over the years, but now mm-hmm. is perhaps coming back into fashion. Just mm-hmm. talk to us a little bit about that. Well, the, the, the main book um, that, that really um, had a huge impact on me was Eric Williams, uh, Capitalism and Slavery. Um, it was based in his PhD thesis in 1938 Oxford, which was almost unheard of because he was Trinidadian. He was a right. black Trinidadian. Um, his mentor was C.L.R. James. Right. So the two of my yeah. friends, although they eventually fall out, but certainly C.L.R. James said that, that William stole his idea. Okay. Uh, C.L.R. James obviously literary, uh, but Williams put yeah. it in academic research. And he did a, a, a lot of research. But he's continually attacked. His big argument is that you know the, the new world slavery powered the industrial revolution in Britain. Mm-hmm. Basically, it was the principal determinant. 
So a lot of quantitative historians since have, you know, taken me task for sometimes exaggerations, you know, making oh, arguing beyond the evidence. Um, but I think it he he was striking at the ideological heart of the British Empire. Yeah. I mean, here was this black Trinidadian in Oxford, you know, the the the, the, the heart of the, heart of the it, academy, yeah. and he was there making this important argument. So it's still influential. I mean, historians still cite it today. I mean, it was published in nineteen forty four. Originally, you know, and historians still cite it. I mean, I made it a point yet to get a signed copy of it. So right. I went on any books last year and seen a, a signed copy um, for a hundred quid, which was a real bargain. He actually came back into politics after his thesis. He taught at universities in the states, but he went back and became the prime minister of Trinidad. So the signed edition I've got is it's a telegram for the the Trinidadian uh, press office wow. when he's prime minister. I'm saying here's your copy. Uh, the book that you sent to Eric, so a hundred quid, I mean, that was a real bargain, so it had a huge impact on me. A lot of the work that's been done on the impact of New World Slavery has been done in an English context. Right. You know, so there had been very little written on, you know, the economic impact of slavery in Scotland, mm-hmm. but Tom Devine's most recent thesis is, did slavery make Scotia great? Yeah. So really I was trying to answer it with, with, a, with a regional study. Okay. Uh, and, and this book had a, a huge influence on me. Um, you mean you spoke? You said briefly about the the at the Empire Cafe the mm-hmm. discussion on museums. Yeah. was you know quite a hot topic. Mm-hmm. Um, why would that be? Well, the the, the point I made um, basically during my PhD research, I went to Bristol, London, and Liverpool. Yeah, uh, and you're naturally drawn to the museums when you're on. You've got some spare time, so. And these are cities that actually in that time have more in a. In common with Glasgow than perhaps other Scottish cities in a way because of their port status, yeah. Definitely, well, certainly like Bristol and Liverpool. The Atlantic ports, right? Yeah. They've all got a direct access to the, to the Atlantic and uh, the Caribbean yeah. and, and North America. So the difference—that's the similarities. But the differences is London, Liverpool, and Bristol have got direct involvement in the triangular trade voyages. You know, quite substantial in Liverpool's case. Whereas Glasgow has got limited involvement in the slave trade. There's only 31 recorded voyages between 1706 and 1766. When you compare that to Liverpool, for example, they send out over a thousand in a 10 year period after 1790. But I think this is one of the, back to your amnesia, this is one of the reasons why we always see the slave trade as a problem for England. But at the same time, it means we've minimised the impact to the actual plantation economy. Yeah. So Glaswegians didn't have involvement with the slave trade. Mm-hmm. They just went directly to the plantations, yeah. so they've got their connections. So the three museums that I went to, you know, you've got the Georgian House, which was a former a slave owner, John Pinney, his, his museum, or his house has been turned into a museum in Bristol. You've got the M Shed, which has got a plaque up acknowledging the city's involvement with slavery. Liverpool, of course, has got the International Slavery Museum. Yeah. London's got the Sugar and Slavery Permanent Exhibition. It struck me that out of the four Atlantic ports, only Glasgow was the only city that's museum didn't have either a plaque or a permanent exhibition up. Yeah. So I made this point at a National Union of Journalists conference during Black History Month a couple of years ago. You know, and it seemed to strike a chord that night. You know, mm-hmm. it promoted a lively debate, and then it got taken on by my friend Dr Michael Morris who's now at John Moore's Liverpool University yep. in Liverpool Michael Michael's a great friend and the two have been doing this he's more literary but well it's cultural history mm-hmm. whereas yeah. I'm economic history or economic and social um, so Michael took this on it was Michael's idea that night at the museums to have a um, you know a debate on it uh, and the reason why 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 is why does Glasgow museums not why is 
you know, New World Slavery, why is it not properly represented? Mm-hmm. And it got taken on, you know, and there has been quite substantial movements since, you know, it's been recognised that, you know, that this is a conversation that's happening. Yeah. So the museum's discussion was, was, was really useful. And do you think that this situation will change? Are there any plans for it to change? Well, the Georgian Glasgow exhibition yeah. uh, last year, which was was really important, we are mutual friend. Yeah, um, he's he's been doing some great work up at up at Glasgow, um, and so the, the important part for your point of view, the University of Glasgow, myself and Simon Newman, professor in the history department, are providing advice on the, the slavery part of the, the exhibition. So that was a small important step, you know, because mm-hmm. Caribbean New World slavery. Um, was was certainly represented there, so we we felt that that was you know really really useful. We've also been working on some podcasts, yeah, as well that are going to be up in the next couple of years oh, with yeah. the Kelvin Grove. We have got a team of historians and everybody to speak in their specialism. I spoke on a silver punch bowl, right, which was great because alcohol has got real significance with these West India merchants in Glasgow. Okay, uh, the Glasgow punch. Right. <laughs> as, as a, no, that's not an actual punch, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen that a few times. I've seen that a few times. a different type of punch. Well, they made up a thing called the Glasgow Sherbet, which was basically it's an early form of lemonade. Right, okay. Uh, they lemon and lime for the Leeward Islands. They mix it with cold water and uh, sugar, muscovado sugar, and they mix it up. Wow. You need to get the proportions right. I've tried to make it myself and I, 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 I can't, can't, I can't do it. <laughs> but then they would mix it up with Jamaica OP, which is overproof rum. Right. So they would, wow. and then it was called uh, the, the, the Glasgow Punch. But they would have a toast as well. Um, the trade of Glasgow and the outward bound. And as soon as the toast gets said, the guys would go and get the punch bowl. The women had to leave the room. Right. And they would sit and drink that. So I spoke on the, you know, just the symbolic significance alcohol so so I think that the museums are certainly provided it's an important platform you know sure, the Kelvin Grove is one of the most visited attractions absolutely and Great Britain I mean this is how Glasgow struts its stuff so for there to be you know a silence about the city's long involvement when you were all slavery tells us something but now it also tells us something that this conversation's happening yeah you know and the, the, the museums are being flexible enough in, in, in trying to represent it so they're doing a good job there's a quote in the preface to your, your book, um, as you say, from the Glasgow Anti-Racist Alliance, that an improved understanding of Glasgow's past will help create a better anti-racist future. Mm-hmm. And do you think that is the case? Hmm, it's an interesting point. Uh, it's actually the foreword by Jan Harrier, right. the director. Um, it's another one of Eric Williams's thesis, is that, that racism wasn't the cause of slavery. It was the consequence, right? Because he's seen, you know, expropriation of labour in the new world. At the start, it was, he says, it was white, brown, and then black. It was your white indentured servants. It was your brown Indians, and then it was black Africans. Mm-hmm. So he's Eric Williams seen that slavery then provided there was an ideology of slavery, and that then it, it dehumanised black people into yeah. chattel property. So then it's you know the long-term legacy that is is, is racism yeah. today so i think certainly as a historian you're always thinking that if your history would have you know an impact uh in the contemporary period and i think any understanding of the past if you can see where this comes from you know you can see the real absurdity yeah. that, that the african people are you know in any way inferior at all if you can understand how this you know, appalling, really nefarious ideology was created, then, I don't know, you would like to think that people would learn from it. I would hope so. That was a very interesting quote, Mm -hmm. because 
yeah, I think people that read historical books often don't think that they have any impact on it today, but mm -hmm. actually I think, you know, mm -hmm. in fact, a lot of the stuff you've spoken about, I think, you know, the people leaving Scotland to make their money and then coming mm -hmm. back has a contemporary context mm -hmm. as well. Well, even, even, you know, the most appalling terms that are still used today, I mean, real racist terms come from that period. Yeah. You know, so there would be specific terms for specific types you know, as slaves, you know, and that there's still racial insults today, you know, and if, if people had a greater understanding about, you know, how this was actually put together, mm. you would like to think that, maybe in a, a couple of generations, you know, you'd like to think, you know, younger people. Learn, education is the yeah, key. Yeah, education to be forward, you know, at numerous, numerous different levels. I mean, you're germinating future research careers yeah. if you're putting in this at the school curriculum, you know, and you're giving people an understanding of, we're all humans, we're all human beings, yeah. we're all family. You exactly. Um, you spoke a little bit about the reaction at the time, the kind of philosophical reaction from Francis Hutchison and, mm -hmm. and Adam Smith, who I always think Adam Smith gets a terrible, you know, picking for, you know, apparently a influence in, you know, Tory, future Tory uh, economic policies. But actually, if you read his stuff, mm -hmm. you know, he is a, he's a liberal writer, I would say, Aye. in the broadest term of the world. As soon as David Cameron gives you your book, the thumbs up, then that's it. It's, yeah, it's so. a bit like seeing you like the Smiths. <laughs> I'm going to go down to my records now. <laughs> uh, so I, I mean, but at the time, was it, there, there must have been people, um, abolitionists, who were in Glasgow who were reacting against what was going on. Well, the interesting point with Smith, I mean, he's writing a qualified critique of slavery. I mean, he's just saying it's unprofitable. Mm. I mean, he's writing some moral critique, you know, but he's obviously writing Wealthy Nations, 1776. The thing is with Smith, he's friends with tobacco lords as well. Mm. I think a lot of his evidence came from Andrew Cochran, you know, who owned plantations in North America. So, you know, Smith's playing a double game, you know, okay. he's, he's part of the elite in Glasgow, you know, so they'd be doing in the, 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 the gentlemen's clubs, and he, 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 probably the, the hodgepodge club, one of these type of clubs. Yeah. So, so he's friends with your tobacco lords and, you know, he's picking that up. But he's saying slavery's unprofitable. But that's a micro level mm. uh, really at a macro top level he's saying the empire itself is a drain the colonies are a drain he says the money that's getting made the government will have to put money in the naval investment for example mm. he says but the money that's coming back through the high taxes it's the British public that are paying for it the high taxes in sugar cotton sugar in particular it's going into the hands of a few special interests your merchants yeah. your, your plantation owners your absentees so he's, he's making this, this this big argument, but the thing is, the abolitionists all cite him. You know, so Pitt the Younger, the Prime Minister in Wilberforce, you know, there's there's one example, of Smith goes down to see them in London, and, and he comes into the room and they say, well, you know, you sit bef down before us okay. because because we're your scholars. Wow. You know, so, so certainly Adam Smith had a really profound impact on the abolitionist movement, and the abolitionists are citing it because this is where, they're hitting the merchants where it hurts. Yeah. If Adam Smith, the leading yeah. authority on... You, you know the global economic system and saying this is unprofitable so there you go there's the information here this is an unprofitable system yeah so I mean the moral argument because it isn't quantifiable is almost put aside say well I can say it's not you're not you're going to lose money if you do right. this um, so and any moral uh, is this any moral reaction as a side issue to it almost I don't think the merchants would be bothered. They're making yeah. cash anyway, your planters, you know, but it's more the abolitionists were really smart propagandists. So then they were taking this information, to the, you know, not just the Glasgow public, you know, but this was a nation, nationwide movement. So they're saying, you know, this is an unprofitable system. It's based on 
you know, exploitation and death. You know, he he has the evidence. Yeah. Before seventeen, probably about seventy-eight, and seventeen eighty. You know, before that, you know, the general public had had little idea about what was going on. Yeah. You know, so the abolitionists really put that in the map. You know, and they're they're smart. They're they're producing. Um, you know, economic tracks and they're, they're compiling dossiers of empirical evidence, you know, collecting some of the Atlantic ports and then they're taking it um, through Great Britain. There's a remarkable guy, 1792, William Dixon travels Scotland with a body of evidence. Mm-hmm. And then what you see, you see the, the Scottish public challenging it through petitions. Wow. Um, a good book by Ian White, Scotland Abolition of Black Slavery, it tells you about the petitioning for Scotland. So, so certainly these guys are influenced by, by Adam Smith, you know, so there's a philosophical underpinning to it that is political challenge there's also a legal challenge okay which fits right nicely with my, my new project on runaway slaves which i was going to ask you about so the perfect time to do that now the runaway slaves you know there's one strand they thought that you know a lot of black people were brought back to great britain mm-hmm. in the 18th century you know the naval captains would be bringing them back um plantation owners or absentees would be bringing them so over but a lot of them would be living in big houses um but some of them actually challenged their status they're on free states and, and run away. Okay. So the famous one example we've got is Joseph Knight. Yeah. And Scotland. James Robertson's novel, which is about him. Aye, it's a wonderful book. Aye, yeah. it's, a, it's a great book. Really a fictional account of it, but you know it's obviously balanced in the the, the court case. But there's other examples. Well, since I've started the new job in January, I've just mm-hmm. been, I've been looking through newspaper advertisements: London, Liverpool, Glasgow, Bristol. You know, so you see these guys. You know. And they're challenging, I mean, the high-profile cases, you know, the Somerset case done in England, 1772, the Mansfield decision, which is qualified. But then you've got Joseph Knight in Scotland, which is a... Joseph Knight's influenced by it. You know, he, right. he thinks this is a national decision, no slavery in Britain and runs away. Gets a, he gets a more far-reaching decision in Scotland, no slavery in Scotland. So these runaway slaves, you know, they're pointing out the anomalies mm-hmm. between chattel slavery in the Caribbean you know, in servitude, indentured servitude in Great Britain, so it's getting the abolitionist material as well, so so certainly the, the runaway slaves is probably no good term for it, if you, if you want to sit and have a real intellectual term yeah. for it, it'd be self-liberated, formerly enslaved Africans in Great Britain, that right. would be the way to look at it, so they're fighting you against... You can't put that in uh, 140 characters no, on Twitter. Yeah, no, you can't, <laughs> no, 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 putting that on Twitter, no, yeah. so certainly they're fighting against their status, it's not just about acquiescence and, yeah. you know, taking this line down, subordination, you know, these guys are fighting back. Um. So, where are you hoping to go with the Runaway Slave project? Well, it's a three-year contract, okay. um, so I'll be publishing a few papers on it. Um, I'm, I'm sure there'll be there'll be other academic outputs, um, but what we're trying to do, the most important thing we'll be doing is trying to identify and photograph all newspaper advertisements here on away slaves yeah. in Great Britain. So Bristol, London, Liverpool in Glasgow for obvious reasons. A lot of them are in Glasgow newspapers as well. So then we'll be putting it in a searchable um, database okay. online. So that'll be one of, our, one of the major outputs. So nobody's did this, you know, and the thing is, I mean, the black voice in the 18th century is, is really, trying, really, really difficult to try and record, but these newspaper advertisements gives us a rich source of data about injuries. You know, some of them are, get scars. Yeah. Like, Either plantation marks or country marks, which That's was which was their marks for Africa. Yeah. Some of them get smallpox. Some of them have been branded. You know, we, we'll get really detailed descriptions of their clothing, 
for example. So uh, this was all in the adverts that were being used? It's the masters trying to get them back. Yeah. As soon as their property's running away, wow. you know, they're, 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 there's an industry around about it. You've got slave hunters in Britain. So you get the runaways, you know, making off and then guys looking for them. So the, the rewards are usually in guineas, you know, five guineas or whatever. Depending on, the, you know, the state of the person and the, or the importance of that. It's well, one, but the rewards are one of the things we'll need to try and work out. Yeah. It's, um, but, but certainly, it's, there's, there's certainly an industry um, related to it. So it's, it's, a, it's a really wonderful project for me because one of the criticisms that I've faced, actually my face, Mm-hmm. It was that night I spoke at the National Union of Journalists uh, conference, or it was it was a one night seminar, and a woman asked me, and it was it was pretty much a curveball, you know. I don't yeah. think I'd been prepared for it. She says, "Right, you've spoke about the history of Glasgow and the economic development in Glasgow, which was incidentally that's what they asked me to speak on." <laughs> um, right. But so I spoke on it, and she says, "So," and it was an African American woman, and she says, "What about the slaves?" And I was like, "I mean, this was." In, uh, Public, you know, mm-hmm. about fifty odd people there, and I'm like, says, well, you know, I've only got hundred thousand words for a start. I says, but this is a histori- it's a different mode of historiography. You know, I'm writing about the economic development of Scotland, um, based on I'm acknowledging this transatlantic slavery had a big impact. So this allows me now to turn it. I mean, I've wrote about the slave owners yeah. a lot, yeah. which really needed done. Sure, but now I can turn it around about. I can, you know, examine. You know the 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 people who the, have been exploited. The, so, the, uh, themselves. and I go back to my first law, which is is really social history. I mean, I was really interested in social history. That was the masters I did. I get sort of sidetracked into economic yeah. stuff, but you know, I can really get into the you know the real details about how people lived and, and that. So it's the social history I'm interested. I mean, it seems to me like the you know the economic history of that period was perhaps the best way in to looking at the social history as mm-hmm. well because it was such an important thing, and you know. Around here, you can see it in every street. The the legacy of that, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether it's the street names or the buildings Aye. themselves, um, and you know, we're joking there about Twitter, but you can follow the project on at Runaway Slave GB. You can. So it is can. a great Britain wide um, search. It's not just a, a, you know looking at Scotland. So you're working with other universities in this, or? Well, one of our big things we'll be doing, I is, is collaboration. You know, so. Um, Especially, we, we, there's a project, Legacies of British Slave Ownership, at UCL at the moment. You know, so they've documented when slavery is abolished in 1834, compensations paid to slave owners by the British government for the loss of their property, which is, of course, men, women, and children. So they've got a searchable database of every person who got, you know, compensation in 1834, mm-hmm. 1838. So a lot of them are for Glasgow. Glasgow is one of the largest regional groups of claimants right. in Britain. So we've got natural collaboration with them. Uh, Liverpool as well, you know. There's there's numerous academics working on this uh, in a British context that, that we'd be looking to be, um, you know, in discussion with. So yeah. it's it's great to be working in a British wide context for me. You know, going down to London and spending some time in Bristol and Liverpool. I've already did it for the PhD thesis, so it's really, you know, just elaborating upon that. Well, it's, uh, and I might be wrong about this, but if you weren't, you know doing this then perhaps Scotland again would have been kind of ignored and it would have been focused on England so I think it's great that it can be you know properly British way Aye well that's good you know it's, got, it's centred in Glasgow and we're looking out yeah. um, usually they're big London centric projects sure um, so, so it's, it's really good to be doing it for Glasgow and, and you know going down to England and, and you know just providing this I mean, it's a really important study so and Scotland should be part of it absolutely well Stephen I think we'll leave it there 
And um, I'm quite in the mood for a Glasgow punch now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> See if we can get it on. Uh, but, uh, well, yeah, thanks for coming. Thanks very much, a pleasure. And we'll be back soon with someone uh, completely different. Cheers. Mm-hmm.